Great. Well, thank you all very much for, uh, for having me. It's great to be back here in, in Austin. And thanks especially to the Strauss Center, to Bobby Chesney, to Frank Gavin for, for having me. Uh, so my topic is the constitutional power to, to threaten war. And uh, uh, one, one of my purposes is substantive. I want to talk about uh, how the power to threaten war is allocated in our constitutional system, how to think about constitutional legal uh, divisions of power when, uh, uh, when, when using, uh, when wielding our military power uh, via threats. Um, but my other purpose is methodological. I want to uh, talk a, a little bit about how legal theorists and constitutional law scholars tend to think about uh, decisions of war and peace differently than do practitioners of other scholarly disciplines, uh, 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 political scientists, historians, as well as the way that statesmen think about uh, decisions about war and peace. Uh, so let me begin with, uh, with a couple of, of, of anecdotes, uh, one of them a very recent one. Uh, so as uh, many of us know, in August 2013, the Syrian government uh, launched a major sarin gas attack against opponents and civilians inside Syria, flagrantly crossing a red line, uh, uh, widely interpreted as an implicit threat to intervene militarily, uh, uh, that President Obama had previously declared and reiterated in public remarks. Uh, then, amid widespread discussion that American credibility was now on the line, President Obama, Obama responded uh, uh, a couple of days later by announcing simultaneously two decisions. One of those decisions was a decision that the United States ought to use military force uh, against the Syrian government in response to their having crossed this red line about uh, uh, the use of chemical weapons. Uh, the second one, though, was his decision that notwithstanding his view, consistent with the view of previous presidents, uh, that he had all the constitutional authority that he needed to launch this attack, to launch these strikes unilaterally, he would nevertheless go to Congress uh, in order to seek congressional approval uh, uh, to make good on the threats that he had, uh, uh, that, that he had issued uh, against Syria. Uh, the Obama administration then began intensive lobbying uh, to try to convince skeptical legislators uh, uh, as well as the public that following through on this threat was important not only for dealing with the Syria crisis, but also for sending a message to other potential adversaries, uh, be they in North Korea, Iran, uh, uh, and elsewhere. Now, uh, that's my first story. My second story uh, takes place almost 200 years earlier when another president drew a red line. Uh, uh, in his 1823 address to Congress, President Monroe uh, declared to European powers that the United States would oppose any efforts to colonize or reassert control in the, in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, Monroe's cabinet at the time had been divided over the wisdom of this implied threat, uh, which, by the way, the United States was, un, uh, was, was unequipped to carry out anyway because it lacked the, the naval power in order to, to do so. Uh, but the, the, the Monroe cabinet unanimously understood, I think, that military action against any European power that might cross this red line would constitutionally require congressional authorization. Uh, and in fact, Monroe's successor, John Quincy Adams, later faced complaints from opposition members in Congress uh, that Monroe's proclamation uh, uh, had exceeded his constitutional authority and had usurped uh, Congress's power merely by committing the United States rhetorically, even in a non-binding way, 
to resisting European meddling in the, in the, in the Western Hemisphere. Now, a lot has changed in the last 200 years. Uh, as a strategic matter, the United States grew after World War II into a military superpower with uh, uh, global interests, global military reach. Uh, uh, as a legal matter, the president effectively asserted vast powers to use military force, uh, 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 and neither Congress nor the courts in, in, in the last 50 years have generally stood in the president's way as he's uh, uh, asserted these very, very broad powers to use force. Now, every student of, uh, of American constitutional war powers learns that the framers split them between the political branches, the uh, Congress is given the power to declare war, uh, generally interpreted as, a, as a, uh, uh, an intention to lodge in the legislative branch, decisions about uh, going to war, and the president is then given powers as chief executive and commander-in-chief. Uh, uh, most scholars uh, 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 then, uh, uh, like I say, believe that uh, 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 the original intent was to split war powers in this way, at least as interpreted by the executive branch and as exercised in practice, the president now wields vast unilateral discretion to use uh, military force in order to protect American interest. Now, this basic story of American constitutional war powers, divided authority evolving into a vast expansion of U.S. military power and then uh, uh, an expansion of, of presidential power to use that uh, 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 military might, give ri gives rise to several uh, major debates uh, among legal scholars and, uh, and commentators about the functional merits of different constitutional allocations of powers. Do we want uh, a, a, a system of divided war powers or do we want centralized war powers in the, in the presidency? Now, one uh, a major dispute concerns how that allocation of powers, especially the, the power to use force, uh, uh, helps avoid unnecessary and costly wars. Uh, so one group, which I would call congressionalists, uh, uh, tend to favor tight legislative checks on the president's authority to use force. Uh, and they still tend to rely on logic uh, 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 that was uh, uh, theorized by James Madison at the time of the founding, that the more flexibly the president can use military force, the more likely it is that the president would actually engage in wars. Better, therefore, to clog our system of war-making decision-making. We divide authority like we divide authority for uh, enacting laws uh, in, in order to, to, to make uh, I, 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 the decision to use force a very slow and burdensome one. The calls of congressionalists for reform usually involve narrowing or better enforcement of purported constitutional requirements for congressional authorization to use force. Now, modern presidentialist scholars or those who favor vast unilateral executive power uh, to use force usually respond to this idea of Madisonian clogging, uh, um, that rapid, action, that rapid uh, uh, action when it comes to war making, decisions about war, is actually a virtue, not a vice, uh, especially as a superpower with global reach, global interests, global power, presidential discretion to take rapid military action, the presidentialists argue, uh, 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 ought to be endowed with uh, what Alexander Hamilton called in the Federalist Papers decision, activity, secrecy, and dispatch, that that's the best way to protect American interests. 
Uh, uh, with that debate among legal scholars in mind, uh, I find it curious that almost no attention has been devoted to an issue highlighted in the Syria case. Uh, how does our constitutional allocation of powers affect the United States' ability to deter conduct inimical to uh, American interests or to resolve foreign crises by threatening war, not just by using war, but by threatening war or by communicating through words and deeds the possible future use of American armed violence uh, 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 in order to affect the behavior of other actors in the international system. Uh, I, to, to me, this lack of attention to threats of force and constitutional powers is ironic because uh, uh, since World War II, threats of force have formed the backbone of American grand strategy. The United States has relied heavily on manipulating risk in order to deter aggression, uh, uh, to coerce or compel certain actions by other states, uh, to reassure allies, to pursue other political designs under the shadow of armed threats. And when wars or long-scale uh, or, or long-running military operations have actually occurred, when, when, war, when, when military force has actually been used, uh, uh, it's usually because some prior policy or strategy of threats of force has failed. Uh, uh, deterrent threats were insufficiently credible, for example, or crises involving U.S. threats of force escalated out of control. So in this regard, most of the time that the United States military power is actually used, and often when it's most successful, uh, it doesn't manifest as a war at all. Uh, uh, so if we're worried ultimately about avoiding wars through constitutional design, we should be thinking about threats of war in the Constitution, not just making war in the Constitution, threatening war in the Constitution. So going back to my uh, uh, introductory anecdotes, when President Obama threatened in announcing his Syria decisions that although he had the power, uh, uh, the legal authority, to take action without congressional authorization, he said, quote, our actions will be even more effective by obtaining it, by obtaining congressional authorization. And he was probably correct in that regard in at least two narrow ways. Uh, yes, uh, uh, presidents have relied on similar uh, uh, legal authority in the past to take unilateral action. And yes, if Congress affirmatively backed his action, uh, uh, at least at this stage, any military action would likely be more potent. But would commitment uh, either legal commitment or even political commitment to stronger congressional control over future military actions uh, or decisions to intervene generally enhance the credibility of U.S. threats, the effectiveness of, of threats to, to use force. Uh, uh, it, it's such uh, uh, future use of force, uh, the effects of future U.S. action, future threats of force, that the president himself acknowledged are so critical to U.S. Uh, uh, strategy, to U.S. security interests, and they're also critical, in my mind, to understanding the true allocation of constitutional powers over decisions of war and peace. So these days, as I, as I alluded to earlier, it's usually taken for granted that uh, 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 whether or not the president can unilaterally make war, he has, this, he has the unilateral power to threaten it. Uh, uh, it's never seriously contested, at least not anymore. As I said, it was contested back in Monroe's time. Uh, uh, these days, it's never really contested anymore that the president has full 
independent authority, uh, uh, for example, to proclaim that the United States is uh, uh, contemplating military op options in response to a crisis, uh, uh, or whether the president can unilaterally move military forces to a region in order to try to uh, 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 demonstrate uh, uh, American capability and willingness to intervene in a, in a crisis. Uh, I think these kinds of threats of war or force also fall within quite narrow interpretations of the president's inherent uh, foreign relations power or his uh, power to conduct uh, 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 diplomacy, his power, his express power as commander-in-chief of military forces, a president's verbal warning, even an ultimatum uh, uh, or declared intention to use military force, uh, issuing a red line, as I was talking about before, could easily be justified as merely exercising the president's sole organ of foreign policy power, uh, uh, conveying externally information about U.S. intentions, about U.S. foreign policy, uh, a president's movement of U.S. troops or warships, uh, uh, to a crisis or elevation of their alert level could be justified as merely exercising his day-to-day -day operational control over military forces. This is sort of classic commander-in-chief responsibility. Uh, uh, this virtually unchecked executive authority to threaten force or threaten war has affected U.S. security uh, and foreign policy in ways often omitted by a legal analysis of, of the allocation of of war and peace powers, especially by legal scholars who tend to focus predominantly on actual wars or actual hostile engagements with enemy forces. So the Korean and Vietnam wars, for example, are generally considered the most salient events for study uh, 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 among constitutional lawyers when studying the Cold War. Yet during that time frame, uh, uh, presidents also unilaterally wielded threats of nuclear war to deter Soviet aggression, to bargain, to reassure allies. They unilaterally, sometimes with congressional backing, most of the time without, resorted to small-scale shows of force on dozens of occasions in, uh, uh, in advance of, of U.S strategic interests. In the 1990s, U.S. presidents wielded threats of force against dictators or militia leaders in places like Iraq, Haiti, uh, Bosnia, with varying degrees of effectiveness, and usually prior to the actual U.S. deployment of, of, of forces into these crises, that, and, and only then would these crises generally attract any attention by legal scholars? More recently, while legal scholars have focused on whether U.S. actions in Iraq or against al-Qaeda reflect an, an, an imperial executive, uh, presidents have wielded without any legal constraint or any meaningful legal constraint uh, the threat of U.S. military force in East Asia, uh, for example, to deter uh, North Korean aggression, to signal to, to, to China and restive U.S. allies that the United States remains uh, 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 engaged in maintaining regional security balances there, sometimes consistent with U.S. Defense, uh, 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 defense treaty commitments, sometimes not. The power to threaten force is significant not only for its influence in provoking or diffusing crises and perhaps causing or preventing major wars, but also because threats themselves put American credibility on the line. Uh, they put U.S. resolve on the line and thereby uh, uh, alter the stakes of any particular crisis, the stakes involved in a decision ultimately to carry out those threats. 
constitutional scholars often make much of the fact, for example, that Congress ultimately authorized the 1991 uh, uh, Gulf War uh, and declined to authorize the 1999 uh, 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 Kosovo operations. Two, these, these being, I think, two of the most significant U.S. military adventures in the decade uh, uh, following the end of the Cold War. It's important to understand, though, uh, uh, those congressional decisions uh, uh, to authorize war in Iraq in 1991, to decline to authorize operations in Kosovo in 1999, as very uh, 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 late, not early stage uh, uh, decisions in a decision tree about the use of military force. Uh, the president's ability to threaten force was critically important at earlier stages in determining whether or not those final stages would occur at all, as well as the policy payoffs of different options. So once, for example, uh, President George H.W. Bush placed hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops in the Persian Gulf region and issued an ultimatum to Saddam Hussein, the credibility of U.S. threats and assurances to regional partners were put on the line. In threatening uh, force against Serbian President Milosevic over the 1999 Kosovo crisis, President Clinton and allied leaders altered the strategic stakes in the crisis uh, uh, among both allies and adversaries uh, uh, by, by, by changing, by affecting perceptions of, of collective NATO resolve among them. In the Syria case most recently, a major argument by uh, uh, executive branch officials who were lobbying Congress to back military action was that failure to act at this stage would have deleterious effects on U.S. capacity to deter hostile actions by Iran, North Korea, and other possible adversaries. And they also uh, argued that failure to act now that the president had stated his intention to do so would undermine U.S. allies' uh, 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 confidence in American commitments to their defense. So many of the strongest congressional supporters of military action made similar arguments to try to, to, try to sway their colleagues. Now, especially when taken together, uh, 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 these factors, the president's vast uh, legal authority to use force, uh, uh, the importance of threats to American security strategy, and the difficulty of climbing down from threats once those threats have been made publicly, I, I think all of these might mean uh, or might be interpreted to suggest a, uh, a, a, a shift in powers of war and peace to, in favor of the president that's even more dramatic than usually supposed. Right? It's often argued that the, the post-war, uh, post-World War II shift in power from Congress to the president when it comes to decisions about war and peace has been, has been a, a, a major one. Uh, 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 so far, what I've said might suggest that, those, that that shift in power has been even more dramatic than, than I think many constitutional scholars would, uh, would suppose. Uh, political scientists, though, have observed uh, that Congress often wields considerable political clout over the president's decision whether to threaten force and in ways that differ from Congress's power to affect the ultimate decisions to use force or ongoing military operations. So whereas uh, uh, most lawyers usually begin their analysis of the president's and Congress's war powers by focusing on, on their formal legal authorities, 
Political scientists, uh, by contrast, usually take for granted these days the president is, in practice, the dominant power, uh, uh, the dominant branch with regard to uh, uh, responding to military crises, uh, uh, and that Congress wields its formal legislative powers in this area only very rarely or in very limited ways. Uh, yet I think a very powerful school of thought holds that congressional members nevertheless wield significant influence over decisions about force, and that this influence extends to decisions about threatening force so that presidents generally refrain from threats that would provoke strong congressional opposition. As I'll say in a moment, uh, I think the Syria case shows that it doesn't always work, but I think that that's generally true. Even without any serious prospect for legislatively blocking the president's uh, uh, threatened actions. For example, Congress, under certain conditions, can loom large enough to, to, to force presidents to adjust their policies. Even when it can't, con uh, uh, congressional members can oblige the president uh, uh, to expend lots of political capital in, in pursuit of a, a, of a policy agenda. Uh, political opponents in legislative bodies have a, a ready and easy forum for registering their public dissent to presidential policies of force, uh, floor statements, committee oversight hearings, resolution votes, funding decisions. And these official actions prevent the president from, from monopolizing the political discourse on decisions regarding military actions, and thereby, I think, make it difficult for the president to depart too far from congressional uh, uh, preferences when it comes to strategies of, of, of wielding threats of force. Uh, political opponents within a legislature also have few electoral incentives to collude in an executive's bluff. Uh, they're capable of expressing opposition to, to threatened force in ways that it could expose a president's bluff uh, uh, to a threatened adversary and thereby, uh, I think, take a lot of the, the force out of it. So even without exercising their formal legislative powers, uh, I, I think a recent body of political science uh, scholarship suggests that members of Congress can shape public debate in ways that affect perceptions of U.S. resolve abroad. Now, it's not well understood how strong these congressional political constraints are. Uh, uh, and I think, as I said before, the Syria case certainly shows some of their limits. Uh, uh, it's impossible to even know for sure Congress's position on whether to threaten Syria with military force over chemical weapons. Right? If we were to turn back time to when the president drew a red line uh, regarding possible chemical weapons use by the government of Assad in Syria, did Congress, was Congress willing to back that, uh, that threat of force, the, willing to, 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 to back the drawing of that red line. Uh, uh, as a general matter, it's difficult to know because the sprawling structure of Congress makes it uh, 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 difficult to, to obtain sort of clear, definitive statements of Congress's position on these things. Uh, but President Obama's d difficulty in securing congressional authorization uh, uh, to strike after the August two, uh, 2013 uh, Syrian gas attacks suggests that the president may have uh, uh, probably did underestimate, underestimate congressional wariness when it comes to, to the use of force there. So in, in my mind, uh, uh, that raises an important question for understanding the practical consequences of war power allocations. Uh, 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 whether greater legal constraints on presidential decisions to use force, such as a broader requirement 
a requirement for congressional authorization or stronger enforcement of the War Powers Resolution would indirectly limit even further the President's actual flexibility for making and wielding threats. Right? We usually think about Congress's authority or willingness to restrict the President's power to use force. How do those congressional actions or efforts to strengthen the hand of Congress in regulating the use of force perhaps indirectly affect the uh, ability of the president to threaten and wield threats of force? Uh, perhaps the marginal and indirect effect of stronger congressional uh, 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 control of force would be substantial. Perhaps the political system, though, already achieves in this area some of the, uh, the virtues associated with interbranch constitutional checks, uh, including prevention of executive aggrandizement, careful policy deliberation, and popular accountability. But uh, uh, whereas legal scholars are usually consumed with the internal effects of of law on actors within the US government. The Syria case raises questions about their possible external effects. How, if at all, does the legal allocation of power between the President and Congress affect the credibility of US threats among audiences abroad, adversaries, allies, other actors in the international system? In prescriptive terms, uh, if the President's power to use force is linked to his ability to threaten it effectively, then I think any consideration of war powers reform uh, 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 should include important secondary effects on deterrent or coercive strategies and how U.S. legal doctrine is observed and understood abroad. Would stronger congressional requirements for authorization uh, 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 reduce the president's opportunity for bluffing, for example? And if so, would that generally enhance or undermine U.S. coercive diplomacy, the use of threats of force in order to try to achieve our, our, our strategic objectives abroad? Would stronger formal legislative powers with respect to force have significant effects on, the, on, 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 on signaling of dissent within Congress? Would it cause it to be read more powerfully abroad? Uh, intuitively, I think greater congressional veto power over the use of force might gener uh, uh, generally seem to undermine the threat of, of uh, uh, threats of force. Uh, uh, it's for some, for, for quite a long time, often been assumed that democracies are at a disadvantage to autocracies when it comes to threats of force and, and saber rattling in bargaining, contest, uh, bargaining contests under the, the shadow of, of threats of force. So the political scientist Quincy Wright speculated in 1944 that autocracies, quote, can use war efficiently and threats of war even more efficiently than democracies, especially the American democracy in which vocal uh, public and congressional opposition may undermine the potency of threats. If all of that's true, then additional formal legal powers in the hands of Congress over war, it might seem, would further disable the president from wielding threats effectively. Uh, uh, because opponents and other players in the international system might doubt not only his willingness, but his ability to carry them out. This was a common policy argument, actually, in, in, in debates in the early 1970s, leading up to passage of the, of the War Powers Resolution. So Eugene Rostow, an advocate inside and outside the government for executive primacy, 
remark during consideration of some legislative drafts of the, of, of, of the War Powers Resolution that any serious restrictions on presidential use of force would in practice mean, quote, no president could make a credible threat to use force as an instrument of deterrent diplomacy, even to head off explosive confrontations, end quote. And I think this view holds that the merits of Madisonian clogging that I talked about before, clogging up decisions to use force uh, with regard to waging 18th century wars are liabilities with regard to deterring 20th and 21st century wars. Uh, the Syria case would seem to bear out these kinds of concerns. By giving Congress a vote, the president seems to have uh, uh, tied his own hands in carrying out his threats and uh, uh, in doing so, also tipped off American rivals and partners that congressional support for new military actions is generally frail. On the other hand, I think some recent strands of political science uh, uh, have called into question the value of presidential flexibility in wielding threats. So some of this work concludes that the institutionalization of, of political contestation in democracies makes threats to use force rare, but especially credible and effective in resolving international crises without the actual resort to force. In other words, I think some recent arguments in political science turn some old claims about the strategic disabilities of democracies on their heads. Whereas it used to often generally be thought that democracies were ineffective at wielding threats because they're poor at keeping secrets and their decision-making is constrained by all these political pressures, a current wave or a more recent wave of political science accepts that basic description but argues that these democratic features are actually strategic virtues when it comes to, to, to threats of force. And if that's true, a question for constitutional scholars is how specifically legal doctrine, legal allocation of powers over decisions to use force or not use force, strengthen or weaken those features of democracy. So some po political scientists argue that democracies are less likely to bluff because transparency makes it harder to do so. To the extent that adversaries and, and, and allies understand this, it makes threats seem more credible, more serious than bluster. Uh, informational asymmetries also increase the potential for misperception and thereby make some wars more likely. War consequently can be thought of as a, as a form of bargaining failure and greater transparency can help, uh, 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 greater transparency about American policy preferences may therefore help avoid unnecessary escalation of crises. So for, the, for some of the reasons I referred to earlier, legislative politics may already contribute to this credibility enhancing and conflict avoiding transparency, but perhaps stricter congressional requirements for congressional approval of military action would push even more, uh, more information about American public uh, uh, preferences regarding war and peace uh, to the surface. Uh, for example, turning more media attention to congressional opinion and elevating the significance of congressional hearings or other maneuvers might make it even more difficult to conceal or misrepresent American preferences about war and peace with regard to particular crises or threats. Moreover, if, uh, uh, especially if presidentialist concerns are, are, are correct, that flexibility is critical to credibility, then in a hypothetical world of very stringent congressional force uh, 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 author authorization requirements, Congress might in turn be inclined to then delegate back to the president wide discretion to use force. As mentioned earlier, 
political transparency stemming from congressional debate about Syria, I think likely weakened the president's coercive leverage abroad, not strengthened it. But for those of us interested in whether stronger interbranch checks are inherently disadvantageous to strategies of threatened force, an important question is whether ex ante, a legal requirement for congressional approval to launch strikes would have caused the president to be more cautious in having drawn that red line in the first place, and whether, as a result, uh, uh, American strategy would have been bolstered. So let me uh, uh, offer a few concluding thoughts with, with, uh, with those general points in mind. Uh, uh, the first is uh, this idea that the recent Syria case has inspired much discussion about constitutional war powers and much discussion about the credibility of threats. Uh, I think those two conversations should be joined because the issues themselves are tightly linked. Lawyers tend to think of war powers as about making war or conducting military operations. Uh, lawyers tend, therefore, to examine wars and military operations themselves to describe how war powers are exercised. Uh, uh, and, and they often defend various interpretations of, uh, of these powers with functional arguments about how best to wage war or military operations. But focusing on decisions to use force, the actual engagement of military operations or military uh, armed violence, and formal legal constraints uh, 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 on those uh, decisions to actually use force, I think misses the many decision points that lead up to them. War powers decisions in a practical sense, not a formal sense, occur much earlier along the foreign policy decision tree than generally acknowledged or understood in legal debates. As a superpower that plays a major role in sustaining global security, threatening war is in some respects a much more policy significant American constitutional power than the power to actually make war. Despite the intense emphasis on it in discussions of foreign policy, Knowledge of how states acquire, maintain, or lose credibility to use force remains severely limited. But in thinking about the future of American constitutional powers, I think legal scholars need to update their thinking about strategic virtues of deliberative checks versus presidential flexibility to better account for these kinds of phenomena and what is known and unknown about them. So thanks very much, and I look forward to your questions. Sure, sure. Well, so, so I think you're exactly right. With regard to your first question, uh, I think there is an, uh, a, a parallel to my arguments here on the international plane. So my point here is that as a matter of domestic law, all the attention is among legal scholars tends to be about decisions to actually use force. Uh, but we ought to also care about threats of force, because threats are doing a lot of the work. And I think the same is true on the international plane. And, and you're right that Article 2.4 of the UN Charter 
prohibits, it, it, it's generally quoted as prohibiting the use of force in the international system. Article 2.4 says something more than that, though. It says, it says the threat or use of force is, is, is generally prohibited. And one thing that I, th I, I think is, is quite interesting is that in the, in the decades since the UN Charter was, was signed, that threats prohibition has virtually dropped out of the discussion. There is almost no attention paid to what this prohibition on threats of force actually means. And I, 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 I would speculate that a big reason as to why that is uh, 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 is because threats of, uh, of force are actually quite stabilizing. Some types of threats of force stabilizing in the international system. We rely on threats of force, especially deterrent threats, in order to, to stabilize certain crises, to prevent military escalation, to prevent rearmament. And so uh, I think it's generally been assumed that when the drafters of the UN Charter said, well, we're, we're prohibiting the use of force as well as threats of force, they had in mind a very, very narrow category of threats of force. Uh, the other reason why I think uh, uh, the threat component of the UN Charter has virtually dropped out of discussion is because uh, 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 it is very, very difficult for lawyers to try to draw a clear line between which are the good threats that we want to allow and which are the bad threats that are dangerous and, and destabilizing. Uh, I, I think it's simply become too hard and has, and, and has basically dropped out of the, the discussion. Uh, as to your second question, other forms of power, including uh, uh, the use of cyber attacks, for example, or covert operations, I think are a big part of this story and would be, in a sense, the next, uh, uh, the next ring out if you were to, to take this analysis further. I think my, my basic point, uh, 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 to put it in very stark terms, is that uh, the declare war clause is not nearly as important as I think a lot of scholars make it out to be. There is, uh, uh, I think, a, a great deal of weight is placed on today on the constitutional power to declare war, constitutional power to use force, because that was a major issue uh, of, of worry among the framers of the Constitution. Decisions to actually use force are very politically salient. They are, are, uh, 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 they are very public. Uh, 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 and it's easy, especially when wars go poorly, uh, uh, to, to look back and say that decision to use force that was the critical moment in the, in the decision tree. But uh, I think if you, take a, uh, if you pan back and look at U.S. grant strategy more generally, uh, I think decisions to threaten force are, are, are often of much greater significance than the decision to actually use force. Uh, uh, and I think you're quite right that decisions to use force or even to threaten force are often nested in the context of a much wider array of policy instruments that the president can wield, including uh, 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 diplomatic efforts, uh, uh, efforts in cyberspace, the use of intelligence and covert operations, et cetera, many of which uh, the president has, again, a very free hand in using. And I think as you add more and more of these other factors, other methods of wielding American power to the mix, I think these decisions to use force actually take on much, much less importance than many constitutional scholars uh, uh, attach to them.
much of what is going on with Turner is extended. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so let me uh, make a couple of comments in, in that regard. First, as a methodological matter, I think this uh, selection, case selection problem that you mentioned in, in, your, uh, in, your comment, in, in, in your comment before your question, I think is a very important one. So as I was trying to stress in my remarks, for many lawyers, the, the salient events, the cases that they study in order to try to understand how war powers, uh, powers of war and peace are exercised and did they work effectively or not. The cases that they study are wars because wars, uh, wars are easy to study because they happened, right? And when they happened, the president uh, not only decided to use force and Congress perhaps participated or didn't participate in that discussion, but a decision was taken and some legal reasoning was behind it. The president believed or didn't believe he had the authority to take that force, et cetera. But you're quite right that uh, uh, if, if the backbone of our strategy is deterrence, the deterrence of attacks on us, deterrence of attacks on our allies, then a lot of the time that our strategy is working, and perhaps when the president is exercising a lot of unilateral power, it doesn't show up at all. The, uh, uh, the success of our strategy is non-war. Uh, uh, and non-war doesn't make for very good study, especially for legal scholars, because legal scholars want to study cases, incidents, and they want to know what the, what the legal reasoning was underlying a decision, not a, a, a non-decision. Um, so I think that's a big reason why when one sees, uh, uh, one watches, uh, legal scholars, constitutional scholars trying to study the allocation of war powers and, and, and how effectively do they work or not, uh, uh, as you said, it's the breakdown of deterrence. Uh, uh, it's Korea, it's Vietnam, et cetera. It's not the many, many nuclear crises or, or non-nuclear crises that were resolved without, the, without actually coming to blows with uh, the Soviet Union during the, the Cold War or with uh, other adversaries since the, since the Cold War. Now, as to your question about um, extended deterrence and then uh, the nuclear, uh, 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 nuclear aspect, in my mind, I, I think the story of how nuclear weapons affected the allocation of constitutional powers is a super interesting one that has largely been, I think, uh, 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 sped over by legal scholars. I think it is, uh, it is a conventional wisdom, and I think almost certainly right, 
among legal scholars that uh, the advent of nuclear weapons was a factor that, uh, uh, that favored strong presidential powers. And the arguments there are usually that the speed and destructiveness of nuclear weapons necessarily required a sort of centralization of power in the hands of the, of, of the president. I think that's probably right, but I think misses some of the, some of the details. And to, and, and to me, uh, uh, in my mind, uh, uh, one of the things that's so interesting about a, the, the decision in the early Cold War to rely on nuclear weapons and especially to extend, as you said, extend our deterrent umbrella to many of our allies turns on its head uh, uh, many of the uh, 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 sort of strategic logics that the Founding Fathers believed strongly in. So the Founding Fathers believed very, very strongly, for example, uh, as I said, the Madisonian notion that we ought to clog decision-making. Clog, the decision to use force ought to be a very slow and deliberative one. And doctrines of extended deterrence were, were generally premised on this idea that we want rapid decision-making, that deterrence works best when, uh, when we can make a, a decision and carry it out rapidly. The Founding Fathers had an aversion to uh, 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 what they called, in, in Jefferson famous, famously called, entangling alliances. Uh, uh, and extended deterrence was all about maintaining our security by binding, by binding our security to those of our allies through formal defense pacts. And the Founding Fathers also believed very, very strongly in civilian control of military force. Uh, uh, and one of the things that uh, uh, yours and, 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 and other works of historians have shown and begun to show is that power over decisions to escalate uh, uh, conflicts into the use of nuclear weapons was often delegated to, uh, to military commanders, giving great discretion over decisions of war and peace uh, 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 to military officials uh, because that was seen as the best way to deter uh, uh, to deter conflict with the, with the Soviet Union. So, in other words, I think many of the changes in our post-World War II strategy flipped the logic of constitutional allocations uh, that were envisioned by the Founding Fathers. Uh, it's, a, it's a great question, uh, and I, I think it depends a bit on what one means by congressional authorization or congressional approval. Uh, I, and in my mind, it's a mistake to think about congressional approval for strategic decisions, decisions about the threat of force, decisions about the use of force, in very formalistic terms of looking for a formal 
authorization resolution that is passed by both houses of Congress, signed by the president, et cetera. I think that's the way that, that Madison thought about it, and that's certainly one way in which Congress can register its approval of decisions about the use of force or how the United States is going to wield its military might. Uh, I think during much of the Cold War, though, that's not how it worked, and instead, it was through a, a, a series, a long-term series of decisions about what kinds of forces uh, uh, Congress was going to fund, uh, where those forces were going to be stationed, the participation of the Senate in mutual defense treaties or, 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 or defense pacts with, uh, with some of our allies. I think those were the vehicles to, to use your term, those were the vehicles by which I, I think much of congressional participation in, uh, in strategic decision-making took place. I think from a, a formal constitutional law standpoint, uh, I, I, it's, it, it, there's a, a big debate about how much to credit those kinds of decisions as constituting congressional approval. At one end uh, are those who say, uh, that, that's, that doesn't cut it when it comes to decisions to use force. What we really want is uh, 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 a, a formal deliberation by Congress and an express decision. The, the president is hereby authorized to use force in the following circumstances. Uh, I, I think uh, you know, one of the lessons uh, certainly that was learned during the Cold War and that is, is being relearned today is that strategic decision making uh, the world doesn't work that way. The, the world, or, or some ways in which we may choose to exercise our military force, uh, uh, are not conducive to that kind of decision making. Now, one alternative, one alternative would be to uh, to go to Congress well in advance of a particular crisis and say, "Look, down the road." I mean, what, what, to, to take the Syria example that we were talking about before. The president, uh, uh, the way this played out is a year ago, the president draws a, and reiterates a, a red line, says uh, if Syria were to use uh, chemical weapons in a large way, that would be a game changer, that would change our calculus, implicitly, implicitly threatening that the United States would uh, at least consider and probably use military force in those circumstances. Fast forward a, a, a year later when uh, uh, Syria actually does cross that line, it's at that point that the president goes to Congress and says, okay, they crossed, they crossed the red line I drew, I'm now coming to you for authorization. Um, one might imagine a, a, a very different practice of congressional authorization that would occur at that earlier time frame. The president is concerned about possible Syrian chemical weapons use, wants to draw a, a red line and deter Syria from acting. So at that stage, he goes to Congress and says, I don't know whether, whether Assad is going to use or not use his, uh, his chemical weapons, but I want to make sure he doesn't. And I want to make sure that we send a powerful signal to other states not to use chemical weapons. So I want you to authorize the use of force in the event of chemical weapons use in, in response. Pre-delegate to me, pre-authorize the use of force. Uh, I, I think there are, there are many reasons why I think such a system would, in theory, work better. Uh, I think that kind of pre-authorization would be very, very difficult to achieve 
I, I, most notably because the political incentives just don't align in that way. I think presidents don't have uh, uh, the incentive to spend political capital that they don't, they're not sure they're going to need, uh, uh, need, need to spend, and I don't think Congress wants to, to spend uh, uh, its political capital passing uh, 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 force authorizations for sort of hypothetical threats. Congress hasn't uh, uh, since World War II, right. Yeah, so uh, I think your, your, your question gets at the various ways in which I think the United States wields its power other than through overt military operations. The overt military operations are the ones that I think tend to garner the most political attention. They also garner a great deal of, of attention among constitutional scholars. But there's a, a big question about how some of these other powers are allocated, the power to use uh, intelligence resources to conduct intelligence operations, for example, funding funding rebels and, 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 and so forth. And I think uh, 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 part of the answer there is uh, uh, that there is a uh, there there is a set of processes by which uh, Congress is uh, exercising its influence over those decisions. It tends to be much more behind the scenes, in the form of intelligence committees, 
uh, uh, in the form of decisions whether to uh, appropriate money for certain kinds of activity, uh, but it doesn't tend to get the, uh, the, the attention of the full Congress, and it doesn't tend to get the attention, the kind of sustained political attention that, uh, 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 that decisions about uh, uh, the use of American troops tend to, to garner. And I think that's one of the, the concerns that's been raised uh, by a number of commentators that, uh, you know, Bobby mentioned cyber earlier. Uh, uh, another issue that often comes up in these discussions is the use of drones or unmanned aerial vehicles. Uh, uh, the use of military technology that uh, can be used at great distances with great potency but at very low risk to American personnel. And one concern, especially among what I called before congressionalists, is that the more the United States is able to use these kinds of technologies, forms of power that don't directly put U.S. troops in harm's way, perhaps the freer hand the president will have. Not just freer hand uh, uh, because Congress will not be uh, uh, formally declaring war, or formally authorizing force, but even a freer hand in a political sense because uh, uh, those kinds of operations don't carry the same kind of publicity, they don't carry the same political salience that uh, uh, introducing U.S. troops into a conflict have tended to elicit in the past. Sure, uh, that's a great question. Uh, I've been talking about two branches of government, but uh, most of us remember there's a, a third, the judiciary. Um, I haven't talked about the courts because uh, uh, at least for the last uh, hundred years or so, um, the courts haven't mattered in this field in a significant way. Uh, uh, courts tend not to take cases and then they tend not to decide cases. Uh, about the constitutional allocation of, of war powers. They tend to duck them um, through a variety of, of doctrinal means that are available, uh, 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 decide that they are, are, are issues that are better uh, uh, decided among the, for, for, the, for the political branches to, uh, to work out. I think one interesting question and, and, and by the way, that's a, a descriptive point. I think many, especially what I described before as congressionalists, uh, 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 bemoan that judicial passivity and believe that a big problem, a big reason why uh, 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 power has shifted when it comes to decisions to use force, power has shifted from Congress to the president is because courts are not stepping in and policing that constitutional allocation of power. And, and stepping in, by the way, to say, hey, e even if Congress wanted, uh, 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 you know, was, was happy to let uh, 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 the president make these decisions on its own, that's not a decision that Congress is allowed to, to cede. That's not power that Congress can, uh, can voluntarily cede to the president, even if, uh, even if Congress would uh, prefer politically to avoid some of these tough calls on, uh, on the use of force. So one question 
that arises is, 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 is let's say courts were to get more involved. Uh, uh, in, in what way would they? In, in what way would they lean? What kinds of decisions would uh, would would courts take? Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, at this point, it's 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 quite hard to it's quite hard to tell. Um, I think, to the extent courts have uh, opined on these issues, they have they have generally uh, uh, allowed greater and greater use of 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 a uh, 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 force by the president. And I don't think courts would likely come in and try to, for example, enjoin the president from conducting military operations without congressional authorization. Though it's, uh, it's, it's, it's theoretically possible to imagine a world in which, in which courts might play a stronger role and perhaps, perhaps answer some of these questions that have, for, that, that have remained uh, uh, large gray areas in constitutional law. I mean, in, in, in answer to your question, as well as the, the, the previous uh, 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 question, w one thing that, that interests me is the fact that, you know, over 200 plus years of our constitutional history, grand strategy, military force has changed in vast ways, right? We've gone from being a, a, a weak collection of, of states along the eastern seaboard of North America to being uh, uh, the world's lone superpower. We've gone from a world in which we didn't tolerate even small standing armies to a world in which we can have, you know, at, at a moment's notice uh, uh, can blow up the world many times over. Throughout those vast changes in U.S. strategy, in vast changes in geopolitics, vast changes in the U.S. Uh, power position in the world, uh, the number of times in which constitutional text related to war powers has been formally amended is zero. Right? We still rely on exactly the same few words, and it's not that many words in the Constitution that talk about war powers. Uh, 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 they've been amended zero times. Uh, 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 instead, we've, that's not to say that their meaning has not changed. Their meaning has changed quite a bit, I think, through a more evolutionary process of interpretation largely by the, by the political branches of, 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 of government. Um, but, we've, but, we, but, but our constitutional system has remained uh, uh, pretty strong when you consider how staggering uh, those changes in military technology and U.S. grand strategy are compared to where we started. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's a great question about uh, you know possible declinism. Uh, I, 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 you know, is is the United States in some decline as a result of war weariness or fiscal austerity or the or, or just uh, some relative decline as other powers, China and others, uh, uh, start to rise? And what does that mean for uh, the role of threatened force? In American foreign policy, I tend to I tend to believe. Well, I, let me say my, my own view is I I, I tend to reject the um, uh, sort of the extreme declinist scenario, but I do think it is likely 
that the United States is not going to be able in the coming decades to credibly commit to the kinds of, of uh, uh, security guarantees and interventionism that it, uh, that it committed to and did so in a credible way in, in previous decades. And what that may mean for, uh, you know, in, in going back to some of my arguments about the sort of the relative role of threats of force in American foreign policy compared to other decisions like decisions to actually use force is that some of those other decisions may become, may become more important and take on, I think, a greater, uh, a, a sort of a greater role as we think about the, the, the functional allocation of powers within our, within our constitutional system. I mean, as I, as I said before, you know, I think at, 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 at the height of the Cold War, for example, I think the power to threaten force was one of the most uh, 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 policy significant powers that the president had. Uh, I think in coming decades, I would expect uh, uh, that the, the, the relative importance of that power probably to decline for some of the reasons that, uh, that you referred to and that I listed. Thank you all for having me.